Mark Glanville is the eldest of Brian's four children. I was going to speak to Jo as well, but unfortunately she was poorly, so I just got Mark. Uh, We spoke for about an hour about Brian's fiction, Brian as a father and a man, and also Mark's own life playing for Chelsea Casuals, as mentioned in the first half. You don't have to listen if you know of Brian Glanville's history to the first half of the programme, which commemorates and celebrates Brian's 90th birthday on September the 24th, 2021. But Mark, I hope, gives us some context about the life of the doyen of English language football criticism, who is the forgotten man of English fiction. Listen out for Glanville's first law of Fleet Street and at the beginning of our discussion, sad news about Brian's health. I mean, this is actually uh, Casa Glanville. Oh, wow. my studio is in Holland Park. It's where, uh, and Dad's downstairs, in fact. Yes, I hear it's a mansion. It's the Holland Park mansion. It's pretty big, yeah. It's, It's on Holland Park Avenue. Very nice. Uh, Oh, Holland Park Avenue's lovely. I must have walked past the house. Big wide road. Very much so. That's that's right, Johnny. Yeah, with the the avenue of trees. Oh, it's glorious. It's the loveliest street in London. How is ye old man? Well, it's not great, Johnny. Unfortunately, you know, with him for a couple of years now, he's had a combination of dementia and Parkinson's. (sighs) Even getting onto his favourite topics is difficult to get him to speak now. He just bounces it back at you, you know. You, 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 I mean, sometimes I'll watch a game with him on, on the computer or whatever, and then he so what did you think? You know, I don't know. What do you think? He'll bounce it back at you. Mm. So sadly, yeah, because, I mean, I know people of his age, older than him even, uh, including my godfather, Stanley Moss, a writer, Stanley Moss, Frederick Raphael is a, is a very good friend of mine, uh, who are older than Dad, but are completely all there and are, I mean, you know, at the top of their game, mentally still. So it, it doesn't have to be that way at that age, but it's just luck. Yeah. I mean, okay, so he's lived a long time. But it's just, it's a shame that it's, you know, it's, it's turned out like that. Because it happened with my mother too. I mean, she had dementia too. So we've seen both of them really go down, you know, both of them sort of fierce intellects and then just really go downhill. Well, especially because um, your dad speaks about six languages. So you'd have hoped that would have helped a little. Yeah, yeah, just whatever it is, it's just it's just been unlucky with it. Ugh. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm a personal thing, and I may be wrong about it. Is that I, you know, he was obviously in his time a very, very fine novelist as well, and uh, a playwright, everything. And he stopped doing all of those things, and just everything was then focused on the football. I don't think that probably was anything to do with it, but it always disappointed me that such a sort of highly intelligent man and such a naturally gifted writer should have eventually given up all the other things that he did and, f- and just to focus on nothing but football, which, of course, the apps is, is, is an enormous passion and has been all his life. So, uh, you know, he loves it and it's, it's great, but I always felt it wasn't good letting the other stuff drop personally. He's just a great writer. He's just a natural writer. Okay. But Frederick, you know, Frederick, Frederick Raphael... The classicist. Uh, I mean, yeah, but yeah. I mean, who's, you know, but also Oscar winning screenplay writer for Darling, you know, wrote and Two for the Road, Far from the Mad in Crowds, stuff with Rourke. I mean, you know, big, big career in, in screenplays, glittering prizes, huge success with the TV series, uh, and a 
countless novels, everything else. I mean, a, a serious literary figure and a massively successful one. He's told me on more than one occasion, <clears throat> but uh, he thinks that Dad has one of the sort of great, well, probably must the greatest natural literary gift of anyone that he's ever known. But as a as a fic- as a writer of fiction originally, yeah, he's never known anybody who had that that level of fluency and just a totally natural ability to just put pen to paper and out it came the right way. Do you think um, if he wasn't Jewish, he'd have gone into literature full time? Because there aren't, apart from Howard Jacobson and Naomi right. Alderman, I can't think of many off the top of my head. Well, it's a tricky one, that one. I mean, it, he never stopped writing fiction um, mm-hmm. for many years. And he, he published 20 novels. He's published 20. And, and plays and so on. You know, I think he's is slightly galled by not being remembered or possibly not being remembered as anything other than maybe a, a sports writer. I mean, I don't think that would be the case. There are certain novels that he's written, I think, that will stay there in the kind of, particularly in the in the kind of Jewish psyche, and especially the bankrupts. Which I've read about. I haven't read it, but oh my God. I love that bit where he says in Football Memories, they devoted a supplement to all the correspondence. What's it about the bankrupt? I know it's set in northwest London. What's That's it about? Extraordinary. yeah. Well, I haven't read it for a few years, but I have read it a couple of times, and it's an unremittingly negative portrait of Northwest London Jewish life. I mean, there really isn't a character in it that you can sympathise with, from my recollection. Mm. They're not a likeable bunch. The bankrupt thing is, obviously, it's a kind of play on words, because the idea of going bankrupt to save your business, well, you know, to kind of go bankrupt to get out of financial difficulty possibly in a cynical way. Yeah. But also the idea of being more um, spiritually bankrupt and uh, and possibly occasionally morally bankrupt too. So the bankrupt, the word bankrupt applies in various different contexts, the way that he uses it. A few years ago, I met somebody uh, who's a very religious, very pious Jew, but who came from quite a middle-class uh, background of being a St. Paul's school and I actually met him in, in Italy, where I, have, where I have a house. He was connected with it. In fact, trying to have the, the Jewish medieval burial ground outside the town, Aurea, where I have a house, um, properly identified and recognised and, uh, and given, given proper boundaries. So, I mean, anyway, this, this chap was a very religious, a very religious Jew, and uh, he said to me that he found the bankrupts a really helpful... Uh, an important book to him when he was growing up because he felt the same as my father in the, in his case, he felt that there was this spiritual bankruptcy in the Northwest London Jewish community that he grew up in and that upset him. Now, my dad wasn't talking about that. And my dad's actually in no way religious at all and never, and never has been. This is interesting, but this very religious Jew picked up on it in a very different way. You know, of course, that David Kossoff accused my father of writing anti-Semitic handbooks yeah, it, actually it, yeah. on air. You know? yep. And it was, in fact, I think it was my, my mother's tears that really drove Dad to court over it. I mean, it was you know, profoundly slanderous. And in fact, I, I, I wrote about it in an article recently. I revisited the idea of, of my dad's attitude towards his Judaism. And, I, and in, the, in the piece that I, I mean, I say it made me think, rethink the whole thing. 
And I would say that uh, there's, there's absolutely nothing at all that, that's anti-Semitic in what he wrote. Um, what he wrote was, was, an, was an honest portrayal of that community, warts and all. It's how he saw it. Um, but he also saw it as somebody that hadn't grown up in that community because he was taken, sent off to a very, very, very sort of Gentile, can I say the word, Goish? Yeah, very Goish, school. yeah. You know, very much so, you know. Charterhouse, and before that, Newlands Prep School, he was sent away when he was very, very young. His father changed his name. We, it took us a long time because we were looking for uh, to, get, to get an Irish passport after all this Brexit stuff. And we, which we're entitled to because his father was born in Dublin. And we did a lot of research, uh, and particularly my sister Jo did. Unfortunately, isn't with us now today. No, she's still um, with us. Still with us. She's just got a cold, but... <laughs> no, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, we're careful here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, and we discovered that his, one of the reasons it took us for ever and a day to find his birth certificate, which we did eventually discover, was that he had been born Zalig, Zalig Goldberg, who became James Arthur Glanville. So he completely gentilized himself. And it, it wasn't just naming the, the, the name Glanville. It was going from from Zalig to, I think then, he was known as Joseph. I mean, he was perhaps like Joseph, Zalig when he was born, but then he became Joseph. But then he changed that to James. So he was really not, he wasn't He wasn't really trying to keep a connection with his Jewish identity. But it, was that not... Mother. Sorry, Mark, was that not out of fear because the pogroms were going on and the worst thing you could be was a Jew in the early 20th yeah. century. This was in the middle of the 20th century in the UK. Mostly. The, the, name, the name Glanville, Joe would, would, would be able to confirm it, but I can't remember whether they, whether they changed it, because my, my uncle did too, Jerry, changed it to Glanville from Goldberg in Ireland or in, in where they both got to London. Supposedly they plucked them this very Nor- Anglo-Norman name. Couldn't be anything more Goyish than the name Glanville. And they plucked it out of, a, out of a supposedly a telephone directory. And I've thought of it because my Jewishness is extremely important to me. And it's become very, very significant to me in my life and a, a real driver. And I'm very proud of it and shout it out aloud. But I thought of changing my name to, to my mother's maiden name, which was Manasseh, which is a name that I love and which I use, in fact, on Twitter. Yes. But you understand, as you say, Johnny, you know, you, what they were going through, the difficulties that they went through. But I'd like... I don't know. In my, in my, this isn't about me. This this thing, anyway. But in sure my case, is. I sure it is. You know, you're I, you're the flame. But I would like. But yeah. But I would like to. You know, for me, I want to. I want to just do everything I can to promote things to do with Jewish culture in the way that I'm able to. You know, through through music and through literature. And I really particularly plug Yiddish literature and so on. So I found that for myself. What we had at home, a kind of endless Holocaust litany. So every, every, practically every day there would be some reference to the Holocaust over dinner or whatever. And, of course, it was, a, it was a miserable, terrible thing. My mother lost family, by the way, and she was mainly brought up in Berlin in her childhood. And the third of the family that stayed in Berlin didn't survive, as you can imagine. Um, she came to England. Well, much like Michael Rosen, I think he had cousins who perished as well. But yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah I'm, I'm sure. But yes, what I was going to say was it was my, but it was my father who didn't actually lose anybody. Well, probably the family who stayed behind, but who he was had no contact with. 
it was a terrible running sore. Now, if you think, so I was born in 1959, only 14 years after the yeah. end of the, of the war. So, you know, we grew up in this with this shadow hanging over us. And it was that, that thing, that, that wonderful, uh, is it Anne Karp who wrote that wonderful memoir, The War After, about what it was like growing up with Holocaust survivors. My mother wasn't really a Holocaust survivor, but there was this whole sense of, of Jews of my generation growing up with this terrible, terrible shadow over us and coping with it in our own way and the, and the, and the, and the wounds that have been caused to our community in different ways. But my, in my father's case, there was this incredible anger about what had happened and the enemies of the Jews. And I saw that amongst other Jews of his generation, too. And you understand how it happens. But it wasn't a healthy thing for kids to be brought up in. And you grew up with this kind of hatred, which, by the way, I've spent my life fighting, and in my own case, and particularly through music. And I, and I really don't feel it now, especially with Germans. I haven't got, the slight, I haven't got a, an ounce of anti-German feeling in me. And it's nothing to do with anybody that's alive today. And I've had Germans apologise to me for what happened. I said, why? You didn't do it. Like your dinner table, we go to the Holocaust. Well, we are in the 10 days of repentance at the moment. We're talking on yes. September 14, uh, yeah. well over the fast and so forth. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think I'll be spending Yom Kippur because I don't really go to synagogue because God is everywhere yeah. and uh, I, like, yeah. I like my bed. And um, what I will do on Thursday is catch up with the When Saturday Comes um, collection, The Man Behind the Goal and other short stories, uh, which was put oh, together yeah. by When Saturday Comes. Got a very nice introduction by Harry Pearson, uh, who right. says that his first uh, meeting with uh, your dad, Brian Glanville, sitting down next to him and saying, as Porfirio Diaz remarked, poor Mexico, tan lejos de Dios y tan cerca de los Estados Unidos, because they're in... Uh, um, yeah. Are they playing America? I don't know. Um, if yeah. I had ever pictured yeah. my first encounter with one of the legends of British football writing, I guess I might have hoped for a scene like this one, which is very nice. And uh, he's very kind about Jerry Logan dying of the light. And um, yeah. I just wanted to ask which story I should read first. And indeed, did Brian ever read you his own bedtime stories? Yeah, um, I don't recall particularly that he did. I think that was more mum, mum's thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, cert- I certainly have a, an extremely high regard for those stories. Um, I think I think he's a, an exceptionally fine short story writer who should be in any anthology of English short stories that comes out. Is ignored by the likes of Philip Henscher, who may not be aware of his work. I don't know. Or maybe through some kind of snobbery to do with sport. And this is what concerns me and, and people like Freddie as well. That unfortunately, the thing about being known entirely for the football is sometimes to the detriment of his very of often extremely fine fiction writing. You know, there were a couple of anthologies that came out. I think one was edited by Philip Henscher. Not a thing of my dad's in it. And Freddie actually wrote to me and said, you know, how can they not include short stories by Brian, by Brian Glanville? Um, because they, he really was a master of the short story. There's no question. And I think that he was a, often at his absolute best in these because he had this tremendous uh, precision, wonderful conciseness in his language. He knew how to get, he knew how to be able to portray in a few, get a character on, across to the reader in a few beautifully turned sentences and marvelous dialogue. 
And as you said yourself, you know, he's got this tremendous ear for languages, a wonderful linguist, a remarkable linguist, and, and speaks, you know, beautiful and and correct and fluent Italian and French and Spanish. But all of them, really, he speaks really very, very well. <clears throat> Certainly did. <clears throat> so anyway, this ear for language that he's got, it, it's, it's, it extends, I think, to his ability to hear dialogue, to hear other people who may not be from his world. <clears throat> so he's a wonderful mimic and extremely entertaining. I mean, just an, he was had a, an absolute wealth of Jewish jokes, which is a wonderful legacy that we've inherited. Oh, thank God for that. And uh, I hope your kids and nieces and nephews have also inherited it. Who is, who? Joshi, is that your son or uh, Toby? Well, yeah. who's, whose son is that? Joshua is my son. And in fact, it's right. interesting, Joey, because Josh has really, really inherited the Glanville gene. He's, I mean, he's a Fulham supporter, which is, you know, you can't win them all. But anyway, but it's a gen- actually, the thing about Fulham is they're a genuine club. Correct, they're the a- nicest club in Britain, someone called them. Yeah. Possibly your dad, like- actually. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. But it's, I mean, they're a proper club. You go to Fulham and it, they're still, you know, they're not known for their, for their thuggery exactly. But nor are they a kind of bunch of middle-class ponces, um, like like so many Chelsea fans. I hope you're not a Chelsea fan. Oh, well, anyway. no, I'm, I'm Watford, but I, I admire I, Alex sure Ferguson, so we can talk about United if you want later. But No, I mean, I'm Millwall, actually. Oh, wonderful. Um, I've, been, I've been Millwall for about 25 years. Ah, well, so you were Man U in his book. In Brian's book, you I'm, were Man U, so you've I'm, obviously I'm, seen the right. error of your ways. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, a, I was a Cockney Red, and I wrote about it in my own book, The, Go- the Gobber Variations, about, about being a Cockney Red, and it was a, and about becoming involved in football violence and stuff like that. But Millwall is, I abs- I'm absolutely at home with Millwall. I, I love Millwall. I love the supporters. They're not properly understood by many people. I managed to, to achieve 250 in almost entirely negative comments uh, in relation to an article I had in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago after the England shenanigans. I read it, yeah. Right, okay. So, I mean, yeah, that was all, that was all sort of tied into Millwall as well. It was 250 sort of comments basically calling me Satan. It's hilarious, actually. Mm. I said, <laughs> as, long as, as long as it doesn't upset Millwall, I don't care, you know. I really couldn't care less. Anyway, but but that but Dad had this in, has got this wonderful ear and ear for dialogue, and, uh, and he, 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 he was as I say, he was incredibly entertaining and funny. Josh is mil- just right. Josh is full, and that's how we got to this. Yes, but, but Josh um, is absolutely passionate about the game. His knowledge of the game is 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 tremendous. Um, he's got a deep deep knowledge of the history of football. He knows about everything that's going on just about any country. Uh, wow. At any given time, I mean, and he's got his dad's, his granddad's passion for football. I love football, of course I do. It's massive to me. You know, I've got that weird bent towards the kind of hooligan aspect to it, uh, which is slightly strange. But I, I, anyway, I we won't talk about that. But um, but Josh is, is really a passionate football supporter and knowledgeable and uh, able to analyse games in terms of tactics has statistics to hand, <clears throat> and can write, actually. <clears throat> I mean, he really is his, his granddad's grandson. That's super, um, uh, because he... What, at what age did you allow him to go with Grandpa to watch Fulham QPR and effectively be his copy boy? My father was struggling with, um, with technology. 
uh, understandably for somebody of his age. I mean, he just wasn't up to taking to com- computers to games, typing stuff in. He, he just couldn't get his head around it. He's never been a great, you know, he's, a, he's a technophobe, and he always has been. So he used to get people uh, into basically take copy for him. And uh, one of them was my son, Josh. And so Josh would, uh, would, would take copy for my, for my father and uh, then file it through to the Sunday Times. But I, what happened was that things got worse with my dad in recent years and he wasn't able to see things so well and wasn't gra- grasping the game quite as well as he had been. And, and Joshua's contribution became a, a little bit more than a copyist and he became involved in some, you know, he'd, he'd explain you know, how a movement had gone to the, 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 the creator, the goal, or, or he'd, he'd even sort of give, you know, give, give, uh, give marks out of 10 to players and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And in fact, I, I did a few games for my dad like that too. And, and I found it was happening more and more and more. But I was really struggling. Because <laughs> Josh could do it. It was like a duck to water. Because he's so, so au fait with, with the modern game. Would you, would you think that he should apply for the vacant column in world soccer? Because last year, <laughs> Brian's column disappeared. Um, and not, yeah. not, not through nepotism, but I think through what you, you're saying. I think this is perfect. Josh, Josh would be absolutely brilliant. Yeah, honestly, I, mean, I, I know I'm saying, you know, the, the Nachas and the Proud Father. Indeed. My son, the writer. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, but he's a, I mean, he's been, he's a, he's a lovely kid and he's been, he's doing well. He's, he works, he's just got a job with a very high, high level estate agent. So he's been doing that for a while now and, and other things as well. Uh, and he wants to eventually create his own business. Uh-huh. But he, he really wants, to, he'd love to get into football journalism. And he's so, I mean, I honestly, he is so damn good at it because he has a natural writing flair. Well, I'll have and to he, get him on. I'll have, you'll have to give him contact details. And when he's not out showcasing the stairs up to the bedroom, uh, like Dion <laughs> Dublin. Um, we'll, so, yes, yeah. the man behind the goal is available. And um, every football short story collection and novel because this is uh, with your blessing the brian glanville football library because yeah. i do want to open this library and brian is the the person who is do you know what a doyen is do you actually know what it is or if you look it up in the dictionary do you have just your dad's face the, the doyen of football the, the doyen, doyen of football, football well the first english language football critic before him it was reportage and then it was criticism Starting in the well, starting in about 1959, in the cataclysmic event of um, your mum giving birth to you, although your dad wasn't at the birth. Never again, I had to. I loved them, and I really, really, I just think those stories. I mean, I, I just think they're marvelous. He, as I say, that he's got every all of the ingredients of his writing come together in those stories. As I say, the precision and the. the characterization the wonderful dialogue the great ear that he has somebody can write different characters of different countries and classes of course as well having gone to public school and you know and we've practically got a pre-war charterhouse accent and i can i used to dine out when i was at university i'd dine out on anecdotes about my father you know Speaking like that, Brian Glanville here, you know, this wonderful sort of you know, public school voice. I have heard stories about Brian bursting into song on public transport. So my question here is, do you only sing in professional engagements or has Brian ever sung with you at family gatherings and such like? Right, family gatherings, he'd burst into song all the time. 
and he and he, and he really and he really had a song for every occasion. I mean, he was there was a, there, it used to annoy the hell out of us actually. You know, there just wasn't there wasn't a phrase or a word you could come up with when he wouldn't suddenly burst into song. You know, there was it just he needed no excuse at all. There was always always a, a song reference that he could, he could come up with. But they were songs from the shows. It was always light music. Yeah, and he really did have a lovely voice. You know. A fine baritone voice, as they sometimes say. He, he had a lovely voice, my dad. I remember there was a time when I was going through real vocal hell. I got into trouble. I was in the profession. I, things went wrong for me. And I had hemorrhage of the vocal cords. I had polyp of the, developed on the vocals. Oh, no. I remember at that time being really fed up. He was, he'd start singing. I mean, he's singing far better than me. The, the sod. <laughs> you know, it's like... I could. I, my, my voice was just so crap at that point. My dad would start singing at the dinner table. He's... He's just singing so much better than I can. After all the training I've had, it's so annoying. Yeah, well, so it's because know... he's lived in Italy for for a bit, so he, where opera is pop music over there. It was incredible that there were two English managers in Rome at the time he was in Rome, and the stories that right. he tells in the book of being in Florence. But I suppose yeah. after he had you, and then the twins, Elizabeth and Toby, uh, and then That's... Josephine, Joe, uh, at right. the back. So he was he became the breadwinner. And went through his professional life in the 70s and 80s. How many copies, by the way, of the story of the World Cup are in that room that you're sitting in? God, I don't know. I mean, I've got, I mean, I've, they may not, because I've got books in another room as well. Uh-huh. A lot of his books are not here, but I mean, I've got every one of them. I mean, I, I every single book that my dad ever, ever, ever published, he always gave me a copy and I always kept them, of course. So I've got all of that together with his, with his extraordinary program collection, which is upstairs in this house. Oh. Thousands of programs that go back to 1922, which of course he didn't see two Arsenal games. It's amazing that Highbury is only like 15 years older than he is. So he only missed about 15 that, years of no, Arsenal really. in his life. Well, obviously, couldn't go when he That's, was young. But yeah, yeah, which is why he was able to write the history of Highbury among his many books. But yeah, I do. I don't know where Brian is going to donate all those programs and books, but we'll have them well, at the football library. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, we'll sort sort that one out. But yeah. like, there are a lot of them. And in fact, I, I I added my own collection, which was also I, mean, I went to a fair old number of games myself that he wasn't at. Lots and lots of Man United programs over the years. I'll and, just. And like, I'll get that. Seasons where I had entire seasons worth during the 80s. I had entire seasons worth of home progress. I mean, I'd go to every game. When I was at the Royal Northern College of Music, I'd go to every match. But anyway, we've got thousands of programmes. I mean, we had for a while every FA Cup programme from about 1950 to the present day. I mean, every single one. All these 1958 Sweden World Cup programmes, these chunky black programmes as well. Despite his wonderful accent... And this one, one marvellous confidence, which I really envied, to never veer from it. Because, I mean, I, I, I'm a real chameleon, I think. You know, I, I'm, it's partly to do with the schools that I went to. And I went to Pimlico Comprehensive, which is actually a very, very dodgy, tough school. And I, you know, and I started off speaking with a kind of private school accent, which I'd had from before. And it got me into a lot of trouble and a lot of fights. <clears throat> and, in fact, I kind of changed, I've sort of changed my identity into this kind of morphed into this football hooligan kind of character with two-tone tonic trousers, Ben Sherman shirts and stuff. But my dad never, never veered. He always, he never changed his accent, no matter what context he was in, no matter where he was, he would speak with this wonderful voice. Um, But at the same time, there was nothing about my father 
that was that was snobby. He he never ever looked down on anybody from being from a different background in terms of their class ever. And I think that became people just knew that people around him. And even if we had some dustman came in to do stuff and you. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? And can I get you a cup of tea? Anything you'd like? And you know, speak to them. Always friendly, always polite, always respectable, respectful to everybody, unless they crossed his path Indeed. in the wrong way. He's merciless then. I mean, yeah. merciless. <laughs> Here they were again, the England fans, an alienated underclass that could express itself only through violence, a miserably untalented subspecies. Uh, he recounts Heisel and... Uh, in the book, and obviously the 80s were slum sports. Well, no, 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 because it's like Man United fans. They're they're an amorphous bunch, but particularly we saw that. I don't know if you were at Wembley for the Euro final, but this is this is the element. It's no, they're not going away, no matter how much like Block 109 does the banners. There will always be Neanderthals, and this isn't a classist thing. It's not. It's just bored human beings, probably on drugs looking for something meaningful to do with their lives. I mean, you could say Nick Hornby, who was living a meaningless existence as a teacher, wrote Fever Pitch and brought it into the middle class. I don't know if that's a stretch too far. Your dad is a fan of Fever Pitch, I know. He's not, he's not a fan of it, actually. Is he not? Um, no. He used to say, who the Nick is, fuck Hornby. Actually. <laughs> I'll leave that in. In his yeah. um, The Footballers Don't Cry set of writings, he launches into the idiom. The idiom of football writing, where you've got... Uh, it's, a, it's a bum steer, because you've got good writers writing for populist papers, bad writers and, and middling writers um, effectively giving up their... Uh, compromising. They're compromising their own style. So that is the problem that Brian has had since you were born, the fact that we haven't got an English football writing idiom, which I'm, I'm afraid to say it's his... His is the idiom. There's that wonderful quote that I think it might have been Paddy Barclay, another of the, the very fine um, writers of, of, of recent times, who said there, there are two categories of English football writing, those who were influenced by Brian Glanville and those who should have been. And part of it you could maybe tie into what I've just said about this lack of any kind of snobbery was that he treated football in a very serious way that he didn't in any way dumb down what he the way that he wrote just because he was writing about football didn't mean he had to write in a way that was toned down or dumbed down he would write about football the way he wrote about everything else you know it was very he's a very honest man he's a very he's a man of tremendous integrity and and sincerity he's so honest and it's all factors into who he is. It factors into his personality and the way that he won't talk down to anybody. But his football writing itself, I think, is related to that. That he doesn't dumb down. He writes beautifully about football, and he writes eloquently and well, as he does about everything. Writing well about football doesn't mean writing in a pretentious way either. There's nothing about my father that's pretentious. There's nothing in his writing that's pretentious. It's just damn bloody good writing. Mm-hmm, you know, as I said, the short, the short stories, Johnny, that you're talking about, they're wonderful. The ones that When Saturday Comes published, they're really, really fine stories. And when I talk about the likes of Philip Henshaw, not including them in anthologies of English short stories, 
I do it with a sense of hurt, you know, because I'm actually really proud of my father. I'm really proud of him. Um, he's a fantastic example to me. I, I'm a writer myself, and I and I've become a writer much later in life. But I, I got so much from him. I learned so much from him, and not only about how to write, which may I maybe I picked up almost by osmosis. The fact this was a man who just never stopped banging on doors all through his life. And, if, and if, a, if a novel was turned down by a publisher, or he didn't get a play on, he'd turn it into a novel. He didn't get a novel on, he'd turn it into a play. You think about how often we turn a short story into something. He, he was always, always thinking about how he could make something work. He'd never give up. He was absolutely uh, dogged about stuff. He, he, would ne- he would never let something go because it was turned down the first time or whatever. And he would sit there writing, 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 writing all the time. He was had this fantastic work ethic. You know, so, yeah, a, a man who, all of us are, have got our, our drawbacks and our problems and our issues. But he's somebody that I admire, admire enormously. Um, I mean, I really am incredibly proud really, to be his son, I have to say. Yeah. Um, I love the line that my football journalism would underpin my fiction. So to be known for the secondary thing is very strange. I spoke to Julie Welch and you are entirely um, allowed to no comment on this. But there is one quotation in um, this edition of Phil Shaw's book of football quotations. And uh, I must put it to you for the sake of balance and you might know what's coming. Women's football is a game that should only be played by consenting adults in private. Women's football is better than it's ever been now. He's kind of a bit of an old school misogynist. It's the kind of it's the the world he grew up yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of a yeah. bit of a sh- I'm not. It's a bit of a shock to the system when the, when Julie Welsh started turning up in the press box and so on. You know, he wasn't going to be the most welcoming person there. I don't think, uh, and I'm not condoning it. Um, it's the world that he that he came from, and it, yeah, as I say, a bit of a shock to the system really. Yeah. And he's kind of a he's a he's, a, he's a, in a way he's a kind of lad. He loved the whole camaraderie of being of being surrounded by blokes, not only uh, in the press box but in the in the dressing room, because of course he ran Chelsea Cash. That was exactly where I was going. Thank you. What was it like uh, playing for them as a teenager? Bit of a nightmare. It was taken incredibly seriously. He ran the, the bleeding thing with a with a bit of an iron boot. You know, I mean, it was it wasn't a comfortable team to play for because. Uh, I mean, mistakes were punished if you you know if you, if you were considered not to be giving your all or or to not be on form or whatever it was. I mean, you'd be yelled at and shouted at. He would scream and yell at other other players in the team. The vibe came from him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the captain, but it was his creation, along with you know another great football writer and personality, John Moynihan. It was it was a, it was his creation. So he. And, and the, the vibe, the, the atmosphere came from him. And it wasn't always a comfortable one, I have to say. I mean, I, was, I played a lot myself. We had some, we had some wonderful times. And he had a, we had a terrific side at about, dare I say, about 19, the kind of mid to late 70s. We had a very, very fine team with a lot of youngish players in it. And we really just destroyed almost everyone we played. And some of the teams we played were really quite, were really quite good, quite high-level amateur teams. <clears throat> but... Uh, 
I mean, there was nothing was good enough. You know, it was a he expected a very very high standard. He wasn't a naturally gifted player. You know, he was the he used to call himself the overslapping left back. <laughs> good. But he, I'm having that. But he was as always with my father. You know, he, he uses high intelligence to make himself as effective a player as he could be. And I played against him several times because I, I played for teams that played against Chelsea Casuals as well. And I played directly against him because wow. I was a, I played on the right I played on the right wing and he was a left back. And he was bloody hard to play against. And I was quite a swift player and I could you know I could do things with the ball a bit. And he would just he would back off you. He'd let you come at he'd let you come at him. And he wouldn't go in for he wouldn't go in for the tackle and go in for a tackle where he knew you could just nip the ball past him and then outpace him. He'd never, never give you the chance to do that. You back off, you back off, you back off. So he couldn't get round the bugger. Well, he had watched professional footballers for many years before yeah. that. So he I think he'd know the tricks. He'd spoken to Danny Blanchflower, um, whom he modelled for the Jerry Logan book. Uh which yeah. I don't know if it's been reprinted, uh, The Rise of Jerry Logan. Um, which I think was it Brian Scovell said because I spoke to him the other day, uh, by talking about the profession, it rather irritated people of the profession. But um, that was a big hit. That was his big smash, Jerry Logan. That's right. But then there were people like Franz Beckenbauer who said it was the best book on football ever written. Best best novel ever written. And and more than just him. I mean, I I think it was quite a highly regarded novel, actually, within the football profession, football player profession, let's say. So I don't mean that's entirely fair. Okay. Uh, you know, I think there's certainly... I'm sure there are reviews on both sides, Johnny. I'm sure there are. As in anything, you know, you're never going to get everybody on your side. But I I think it... And it was... Yeah. I mean, one of his specialities was getting inside the heads of, again, of, of, of people he was... Which is what a novelist should do. Um, and one of the one of the novels he, he wrote, which was quite successful, actually, was The second, uh, a Second Home which was written in, as in the sort of first person of a, of a Jewish actress with sex scenes and everything. Um, and it was, yeah, the the- and it comes from a, the, the quotation, the theatre is a second home. And he got into and it. And I, think, I don't know, I think he might have sold film rights on that one. One thing, he, he made quite a lot of money on that out of selling film rights to books, novels, particularly a Roman marriage, which didn't get made in the end. But he made, I mean, really quite cons- considerable amounts of money that allowed us, for example, to buy a second home in Dorset. Oh, lovely! Uh, on the on the back of that, so yeah, I mean, something like about, like about twenty grand in the in the sort of uh, late sixties or something. Quite a bit of money that was then. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, so that sort of thing. But his ability to get inside the heads of people, which I mean, let's uh, there's just a, a quick one on this one, which to me goes to the the nub of everything that's wrong about well, so much of what's wrong about this woke nonsense that we're dealing with, and the idea of cultural appropriation. The whole idea of, of being a of, of being a fiction writer or a novelist or a great playwright or anything is that you have this extraordinary ability to get inside the heads of people who are not you by using your imagination. You get inside their heads and you're able to write this. You say that only a Jewish person can write about Jewish experience, only a, a black person can write about black, black experience, etc., etc., etc. You're actually shutting down the whole idea of what it is to be a writer by extension. It's dangerous stuff. It's, anyway, it's Orwellian, as as it's most things are. Um, horrible. Yeah, it's, it's dastardly. Yeah. I can't watch comedy anymore because it's just about them. I can barely read fiction 
because it's about the author. Well done for doing this, Johnny, by the way. It's been a pleasure. It's been really nice because I've started saying, oh yeah, Brian Glanville, the Don Daddy. But speaking to people like Leo Moynihan, Nick Schapanik, Rob Steen, Paddy Barkley as well, they all have great things to say about Brian. Brian, um, in 1992, um, he is known for calling the Premier League the Greed is Good League. Any advances on good? Do you want to... Do you want to advance what he thinks of elite football in the Super League era? Um, I think he just, he and and myself and many others, I think, would just consider that he predict, he called it completely correctly. I mean, everything that's gone on ever since has just proved him to be right. You know, my, my friend, uh, the, the really first class uh, journalist and, uh, and now more recently programme maker David Harrison recently did this extraordinary documentary showing how corrupt the process of becoming an owner of a football club can be. The unbelievable machinations that were going on, entirely sort of illegal, corrupt, um, involving all sorts of uh, underhand processes. Is this the Al Jazeera one? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to watch that later today. It's done by a friend of mine, David Harrison. Uh, from, from, from Oxford. It was, in fact, played in the same football team at me at Oxford, uh-huh. uh, Pembroke College, and got a, and got a blue for what mm-hmm. that's worth. But anyway, but phenomenal footballer and an excellent documentary maker. But this is a, I mean, that documentary for me really absolutely nails everything about what my about to do with what my father said. Those are the kind of people that are being encouraged to get involved in football. Absolute. Go ahead. Scum <laughs> like that. The kind of people I loathe and detest as a sort of part-time socialist as I am these days, having been a full-time one. <laughs> I mean, I, I just really, really abhor what football's become. One of the things I love about Millwall is just like I go down there and I'm surrounded by the kind of people I used to be surrounded by in the 70s. <laughs> and most people might just say, well, that's everything that's wrong about football. It's, to me, everything that's right about football. Glanville's yeah. first law of Fleet Street, loyalty is how they screw you over. Did it not get tedious for you as his son, just saying, oh, they've screwed me over again? Dad, just why are you do- Go to your garret and write something. Stop with this. Did you ever try can and I... talk him out of being a journalist? Can I... You're right. First of all, can I... Uh give you the, the original version of that. Yes. Glamour's first law of Street Street is loyalties what they fuck you with. That was how he actually phrased it. Obviously, that's, a, that's the kind of euphemistic version of it. But he used to he used to say it regularly. No, I mean, what, I suppose what I found was um, he was somebody that, as I was suggesting earlier, would just start writing first thing in the morning and would just go on writing and writing and writing, whatever it was, Johnny. It wouldn't necessarily be football. It would be articles he was commissioned to write, of which, of course, there were a number, and always going, obviously, going to the games every day of the week if he could. I mean, you know, the more games there were, I suppose that was. I'll tell you what, was maybe one one of the positive aspects of Sky that possibly he should have acknowledged was that as a result of Sky not, not all games being played on Saturdays. There were suddenly games being played every day of the week, which meant he would never he'd never have to have a day when he wasn't at a match. Anyway, but he'd sit there, you know, writing away. And when we were on summer holidays, that was the time to write a novel. So he'd sit there writing novels all the time. And yeah, we felt at times that he wasn't, maybe he could have been a bit more present at times. And my mother had a bit of pressure on her in that respect to kind of keep keep the kids occupied. Because once he was in that zone, you know, it was do not disturb. 
just going back to something from earlier again about the football the football fiction balance we all need to make a living it's very very hard indeed to make to make a living out of out of writing purely fiction so he had the fiction going and the football writing which was was something that he was able to make a, a good living out of so and it was writing and writing about what he loved you know he, he had to keep as you know, keep as you say keep a roof over our heads he had to make a living he made his living entirely from writing all the way through his life from the age of 17 onwards you can't knock it you know you you do what you have to do and the football writing was was a was a permanent fixture for, so to speak no pun intended yeah. for him so that's how i would and he loved it he absolute he is utterly passionate about football and there's never been anything other than that and if he doesn't appear to be today you know it's because sadly of course now with parkinson's and dementia he doesn't respond to things in the same way but right up to the point where things started to go downhill that passion for football was there right to the to the end which we will, will remember as he turns 90. Joe said something in the citation or the video that preceded his Sports Book Awards outstanding contribution to sports writing. He's quite terrifying to most ordinary mortals. Can you drag him down from his perch? Can you, can you just try and paint Brian Glanville as a human rather than as kind of this literary figure of the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, to me, I, he never frightened me in the slightest. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, I'd give him as good as he got. I think all the way through my life, and because he wasn't—he was never a tyrant as a father. He might, you know, he was—he maybe he may have been self-absorbed. He's and, a writer. You know, he's a writer. You know, I understand that, and I and I get that. And almost you almost can't be a writer of that level and be that successful because no matter what he says, you know. The forgotten man of British fiction, as he terms himself, you know. He's, he, sometimes my ex-wife used to say to me, you would never know from talking to your father that he was a highly successful writer because he puts himself down all the time. And it's true. There's actually a tremendous humility and modesty there too. But he was never a tyrant as a father to us. And we all four of us knew that he really, really loved us too. He was always a very, very loving father. You knew you were loved by him. And he simply wasn't tyrannical to us at all. He was a bleeding pussycat. But, and, and incredibly encouraging to, to all of us in, what, in all of our endeavours, sometimes possibly to the extent of almost being smotheringly so in his nachas, you know? Yeah. He was shepping nachas like nothing, you know? It's just, it was, it was, sometimes I find we found that a bit overbearing. But that, you couldn't say, came out of a bad place. It came out of a place of, of love and pride. But to other people... He was bloody fearsome. My friends were all petrified of him. You know, I've got my, my great friend Roger Highfield, who's now kind of something like number one or number two at the Science Museum, edited, was the Telegraph science correspondent for years, editing New Scientist. I think he's, I think he's sort of, probably still has nightmares about being yelled at and sworn at by my father when he, when he called at midnight to speak to me and the response that he got. <laughs> and it could be incredibly rude and brutal to people as well, but incredibly funny as well. So a couple of things on this one. So one was, remember, after a, a, an England-Scotland game, standing at Wembley Hill, which one of those, the, the British Rail ones or whatever, and there was some jock standing on the platform singing, a, singing some song, the final line of which was, 
but I'd rather be a bastard than be an Englishman. My father just turns to him and says, well, you've had your wish. <laughs> Zing. And that, and that was, um, then the guy turns to him and says, what's up? What's up, yes, eh? Your long-haired gut. And he was so flattered by being called long-haired, I think, I think he just let it go. <laughs> uh, another one was at, when he was at Fulham. And, uh, I mean, he just wouldn't tolerate this sort of stuff ever. But anyway, there were a bunch of blokes in white, white coats, stewards of that particular time, standing in his way. And they said, will you let me through? Because like, I'm Brian Glavid of the Sunday Times and I have to collect my press pass. You can't go through there, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't have my press pass with me. I need a collector for that office. I've been told a collector there. Will you please let me through? Well, I'm sorry. We're not letting you through. These are our orders. So he just barged right through the middle of them. And one of them yelled out after him, Yeah, what do you think we're here for anyway? He turned and said, That is something that has been puzzling me for years. <laughs> I agree. As we saw at the Euros. Football is, is much changed, but in some ways it's still the same sport. The ball is round, as uh, was it Pelé said, and the Germans win on penalties, as Gary Lineker said. It's so pleasing to talk to a Glanville. I'm only desperately sorry that I can't talk to Il Capo di Capo, as yeah. no one calls him. Uh, but Il yeah. Filio di Capo is, is good enough. So Mark Glanville, um, please wish Brian very well. A hearty mazel tov on his 90th birthday. Uh, on which day this will go out on the 24th, is it 24th of oh, September? Lovely. I'm actually going to be in, in, I'm told off by Joe actually, I can understand why, but I'm off to Dorset on that day, the 24th. It's a, a, a holiday postponed by a year through all sorts of circumstances, which I won't go into, not one of them being COVID. Um, so sadly, I'm not, I won't be there on the day itself actually, so I'm a bit sorry about that. Yeah, just anyway. send Josh. Josh will go on your behest. I'm so grateful to Mark, who can be found on Twitter at Marco Manasseh, M-A-R-C-O-M-A-N-A-S-S-E-H, Mark Manasseh. And if you see him around at Millwall, do send your congratulations on the occasion of his dad, Brian Glanville's 90th birthday. Just like the library! Just like the library!